If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Medieval manuscripts tell a tale far greater than just what's written inside them. In her new book, Hidden Hands, Mary Wellesley uncovers the lives of the artisans, authors and owners of these fragile and beautiful documents. From small glimpses into those whose stories would otherwise be lost, to how manuscripts survive deliberate destruction and devastating accidents. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Mary explains how these historic documents reveal a rich picture of medieval life and culture. Hello to you, Mary. It's lovely to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Today we are going to be talking about your new book, Hidden Hands, which is all about medieval manuscripts and their makers. So I think a really important question for us to start with would be, what is a manuscript and what's not a manuscript? And almost where might we expect to find one in the medieval period? So a manuscript, uh, the word itself is a kind of duet of two words, the Latin manus meaning hand and scribere uh, to write. So it simply means a handwritten object. So it it could mean a map or a charter. um, But my main focus in the book is the physical book, the codex. Um, Another thing to say about manuscripts is that manuscripts are kind of distinct from texts. So when we talk about a text, we're talking about um, 
a sequence of written words, right? And when we talk about a manuscript, we're talking about a particular version of that text. So if you take something like, say, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, we have to make a distinction between the poem itself and all the different manuscript versions of the poem, of which there are around 92 in varying degrees of completeness, some of them tiny little fragments and some near-complete copies of an admittedly unfinished poem. Uh, so that's a, that's a key thing to, to, to get out of the way. You, in your book, you talk about there almost being a sort of magic to the manuscript. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about how you see that? A lot of what I wanted to do in writing the book was capture something of the experience that I have when I'm sitting kind of in the in the velvety silence of a special collections reading room and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript. Because in that moment, what I'm having is this kind of encounter with the past, a, a tangible, smellable, visual encounter with the past, and more importantly, an encounter with the people who made the object in front of me. And that, to me, is the thing that's most compelling about manuscripts, that they are handmade, uh, that they are, as I say in the book, smudged with human stories. They've been created by a whole load of artisans and then subsequently owned by lots of different people, used and sometimes misused. And all of those different figures have, have left, often left their marks on the pages. And that's what's so moving, that when you hold a medieval manuscript, what you hold is a collection of human stories. Do you think perhaps there are any particular assumptions or preconceptions made about manuscripts, perhaps things that people don't quite realise about them? I think the most basic difference um, when I show students um, medieval manuscript pages, uh, often what I want to show them is a manuscript page alongside a modern edited text. And to me, a modern edited text is a kind of bald and, and bland and lifeless thing. And what's so magical about the manuscript page is its richness, its messiness, its diversity. And it just looks very different. It doesn't have the crisp cleanness that we associate with the modern printed text. Um, and it has a very different kind of visual language, one that sometimes almost looks a little bit more like a modern website than it does a modern edited text. Alongside, I guess, maybe that messiness, could you perhaps tell us some of the difficulties or struggles of working with them and also with actually sharing them with the public? Yeah, so one of the things that's um, difficult about manuscripts is that they are very inaccessible, right? They're inaccessible in a physical sense because they're generally held in research libraries and they're reserved only for scholars. And you can get to see them if you have a valid scholarly reason, but you have to jump through quite a lot of hoops to, to demonstrate that you do have such a reason. And they're also intellectually inaccessible because they're largely written in languages that have fallen out of use or evolved, um, and they're written in these scripts that are very difficult to decipher. And so they remain distant from the kind of popular imagination uh, in a way that other artifacts from the Middle Ages perhaps aren't. But what's so wonderful about writing about manuscripts now is that so many manuscripts are now being digitized. And so you or I, Emily, could sit at home in our pajamas um, and look at the Beowulf manuscript, say, in, in a level of magnification that would be impossible even in the reading room perhaps in clothing more suitable to scholarly study. And and that's a really wonderful thing because previously, if you were not a scholar and you 
didn't have some kind of valid scholarly reason. The only way you could see a manuscript was in a gallery setting. And in that instance, all you would see would be a single opening, which is a bit like deciding to go and look at an old master painting and then saying, well, I'm only going to look at a tiny credit card-sized area in the bottom left-hand corner. It just doesn't give you a full picture of the richness and the diversity of the object in front of you. It's that it can perhaps give us more access to the past now that with the digitization. Absolutely. And I I talk a little bit in the book, and this is partially why I call the book Hidden Hands, um, about the fact that, you know, if you're describing a manuscript, you talk about the hand as in the handwriting. You know, this is written in a 15th century hand. But there's something about this terminology to me that I find rather moving. You know, the idea that the hands, the hands might reach out to touch us. And until now, it's been very difficult for us to reach out and grasp the hand. And now suddenly we can. So this is obviously the main theme of your book. It's that turning it on its head instead of just talking about sort of what's inside the manuscript, what's what the manuscript's about, but it's actually seeing the stories of people behind them. Who perhaps can we see? Who now can we access through that? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, authors, but I also wanted to talk about artists and scribes and patrons. I wanted to talk about all the different figures that were involved in the production of of particularly literary texts. I mean, my my interest is primarily literary. Um, One of the points I wanted to make was that our traditional histories tend to valorize particular well-known figures and what's really wonderful about manuscripts is that they give us this privileged access to the stories of people from the past who we otherwise might not hear anything about. You know, an anonymous artisan, an anonymous artist, an anonymous scribe. Um, And beyond that, hear about the types of people who we don't necessarily hear about. So women, people of a lower social status, perhaps even people of colour. And that's, that's kind of the magic of the manuscript to me. In what ways could we expect to see these characters? How do they present themselves? Um, So there's a lovely story in the book, perhaps my favourite story, which is a story about um, a text called The Book of Marjorie Kemp, which is the first piece of autobiographical writing in English. And I tell the story in the opening chapter, which is about discoveries, uh, because the story of the manuscript's discovery is a really, really quite wonderful one. So in 1934, it was a family called the Butler Bowden family, who were a Catholic family who lived in Derbyshire, and they were playing a game of ping pong. And one of the ping pong players trod on a ping pong ball. And so they went to a nearby cupboard to look for more balls, and opening the cupboard, out came what was described as an undisciplined pile of book clutter. And uh, Colonel Butler Bowden was was horrified by this and said that he was going to throw the whole lot on the fire in the morning. And thankfully, somebody said, perhaps we shouldn't be throwing this on the fire. Perhaps we should take a look and see what's in here. And they did have a look. And there was one particular manuscript which had what was described as a kind of mouse-eaten cover. And inside it contained the only known copy of what was at that point thought to be the lost book of Marjorie Kemp. Previously, the only known version of that text was a series of heavily abbreviated printed extracts that were printed in 1501 by Winkin de Word, who was William Caxton, England's first printer. He was the inheritor of William Caxton's printing press. And 
The text is really very, very special because, as I always say about it, its its extraordinariness lies in its ordinariness. Because Marjorie Kemp, who wrote the text, uh, was an ordinary woman from Lynn in Norfolk. She was from a kind of, you know, urban mercantile family, you know, what we might term today middle class. Um she worked variously as a brewer and a horse mill operator. She was the mother of 14 children. And she had this incredible life. Uh, she traveled extensively. Uh, she went to Jerusalem, to Compostela, Santiago de Compostela, to, to Aachen, and all around England. And she had these uh, visions of Christ and various saints and the Virgin Mary, which all began when she was only 20, after the very traumatic birth of her first child, probably what today we might term postpartum psychosis. Anyway, Kemp's life was this extraordinary life. and But as I say, its extraordinariness lies in its ordinariness. And Kemp is the kind of person whose voice we so rarely hear from in the Middle Ages. It's so often the voices of a regal or ecclesiastical elite that we hear from. And it's very rare to hear women's voices from the Middle Ages. And that's because those kinds of figures, people of a lower social status, women, were less likely to be educated and less likely to be literate and therefore found it harder to get their experiences written down. And in this sense, Kemp was was no different because she was illiterate and she had to dictate the text to an amanuensis, so i.e. a scribe who heard her words and wrote them down. In fact, she made four different attempts to do this with three different people. Uh, and I find the story of her determination to get her voice heard very moving. But what's important about the story of, of Marjorie Kemp's text, and more importantly, the story of the discovery of the manuscript, is that had it not been for the discovery of that manuscript in 1934 by a group of ping pong players, we wouldn't have this extraordinary work that is an open, unvarnished, honest account of a woman's life in the early 15th century. And what's important is that until the discovery of the manuscript, the only known version of the text were these heavily abbreviated extracts that were printed in 1501. And in that text, Marjorie's voice has been removed. And all we find in that text is the moments in the book when Christ is speaking to Marjorie. And therefore, Marjorie becomes this silent, submissive, weeping woman, which is so unlike the character of the manuscript text itself which is characterized by its its vocal communication of her devotion. How uncommon is Marjorie Kemp? Well, I suppose it, it depends how you want to measure common or uncommon, right? Um, if you take the fact that she's a female writer, um, that is surprisingly common. I think it's one of the great misconceptions that there were very few female writers from the Middle Ages. Um, in fact, in the book, I talk about women and women's role in the production of manuscripts as scribes, as authors, as patrons, as artists. I talk about them in every chapter except for one, the chapter that I talk about disasters where manuscripts were very nearly lost. Um, because I want to make clear that actually we have this rather kind of narrow vision of the past where we it's our vision of the past is kind of infused by our own patriarchal prejudices. And actually, the past is often richer and more interesting than we give it credit for. Um, 
The question of uh, is is Marjorie Kemp common in the sense that she's a woman of a of a kind of lower social status. And how frequently do we hear from those people? Well, there's another example in the book, uh, these amazing letters from the 15th century called the Parston Letters, which is kind of cache of letters between several generations of one family who also lived in uh, East Anglia, where Marjorie Kemp was from. And there I talk about that family and those letters in the context of the chapter on scribes, because what I'm talking about there is something kind of similar to the Marjorie Kemp the book of Marjorie Kemp, in the sense that the women in the family seem to have been able to read, but many of them couldn't write. And so they dictated their letters to uh, scribes who who heard their words and wrote them down. And some of them actually developed relationships with those scribes. And so that's how I talk about it there. In the, le- in the book, there's this really wonderful uh, letter that I talk about from a man called Richard Call, who worked for the Paston family, who had married uh, one of the daughters of the Paston family in secret. And he writes this anguished love letter to her because they've been separated by um, her mother, who is enraged by the fact that she has married beneath her. And it's it's very, very moving because those are the voices we so rarely hear from. So they're un- they're unusual, but they're not impossible to find. <laughs> is is the short answer to your <laughs> to your question? Besides those two, is it possible to find out more about the backgrounds of these people, these artisans, people involved in the making and the patronage of manuscripts? Yeah, I think um, the artists chapter was one that um, I found harder to write in terms of trying to uncover the stories of 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 artists um that's partially because my training is in is in literature i'm more of a literature scholar so it was a it was a fun uh departure for me but it was a bit of a departure but also because um it is just much harder to kind of excavate the stories of artists um i talk about this wonderful manuscript called the winchester bible which was created by this enormous team of, of, in fact, several generations of artists. And what's wonderful about that manuscript is that you can discern each of the different artists from their very idiosyncratic style, and you can see uh, which artist has, has painted which initial and What's lovely about it is that we have this wonderful sense of how collaborative the process of of decorating a manuscript was. I mean, you might think that an artist would would start, you know, do their drawing and then uh, do a bit of the gilding and then do the painting of an initial. But in fact, sometimes it was lots of different figures at each of those different points in the process. And so looking at the Winchester Bible sort of allows us, as it were, the the opportunity to kind of to lift the bonnet and see the workings of the artistic engine. Um, And we can tell from um, certain stylistic features of these artists' work that they traveled extensively. So um, at least one, possibly two of them had also worked on some frescoes um, in a monastery in northern Spain. So we have this wonderful image of these highly skilled artists working collaboratively over several decades, in fact, traveling around, absorbing different influences from places in Europe. But we don't have any names. 
We don't have any dates of birth or death. This is some of the kind of magic of dealing with manuscripts that you have this fantastic encounter with these these people, these figures, and you're able to discern something of their work and, and their life, but ultimately their identity remains obscure. Even if they go unnamed and their identity is obscure, when writing your book, did you have any particularly favourite characters or um, personalities that maybe stood out to you, even if we don't know that much about them? Yeah, well, so so many. <laughs> uh, where to begin? Um, there's a wonderful annotator, um, this beautiful manuscript called the Lindisfarne Gospels, which was an incomparable early 8th century manuscript made in the north of England, created by um, a bishop called Bishop Eardfrith, who most probably retreated to um, an island hermitage in Lent. And over several years, he uh, wrote, he copied and decorated this incredible manuscript. And then sometime around 970, and there was a figure called Aldred who came along and wrote what's called an interlinear gloss. So that means that he wrote in the spaces between the lines of Latin text. He wrote a translation of the biblical text in English. And it's it's one of the earliest translations that we have of the Bible into English. A lot of people might think that perhaps the Bible wasn't translated into English until, say, the 16th century. But actually, that's not true. This is one of the earliest versions, and it's from around 970. But what I really love about Aldred is... Um, um, he he wrote this interlinear gloss, but then he also wrote these little notes at the end um, where he begs that the readers remember him and also the other figures that have been involved in the creation of the book. And there's one particular place in the manuscript, I think it's folio 89 verso, where he's written this little note saying, exhorting readers to remember him and and the other figures involved in the production of the manuscript. And the note is is hidden almost inside the page gutter. So turning the manuscript quick, quickly, you might miss it. And there's just something so lovely about this, this hidden note tucked away. And it's like a little a message from centuries past, um, Aldred kind of calling out to us from the page gutter. And it's stories like that that I really love. I mean, it's very hard to know how much of a personality we can we can discern. Um, and sometimes the personalities are much easier to read. Um, there's a there's a wonderful Welsh poet that I talk right at the very end of the book, Chwevel um, Mechain. And she was um, a poet of the late 15th century. She wrote about all sorts of topics that you might imagine of a 15th century poet, um, particularly religious topics. But she also wrote about sexuality, about domestic violence, about scatological themes. I mean, she's really quite striking in terms of the subject matter that she chooses. Um, a, an absolutely fascinating character. And with her, what you have is this strange conflict of... Um, there is, there is a poem that she wrote which is called To Her Husband for Beating Her, which is this anguished work in which she appeared, well, in which the narrator of the poem appears to sort of fantasize about returning the violence done to her. And of course, it's very hard to know whether she was writing personally, whether this came from personal experience. 
And so as ever, as a historian, you, you have this difficulty of knowing exactly how to interpret the material in front of you. And of course, it would be nice to flesh out these characters in front of you more fully, but sometimes you just have to accept that you don't know. I think that's got to be really hard. Yes, and I think um, perhaps for me, it's it's at its hardest when I'm dealing with female authors or female scribes or female producers because I am heavily invested in uncovering the stories of these women because I think it's so important and so interesting. But I'm also aware that, uh, particularly in the chapter when I talk about authors, um, one of the things I talk about is the fact that it's very, very, very rare to find um, the text of an author written in their own hand, what's called a holograph um, or an autograph. And so most often the text that you read, if you're reading, say, let's say Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, there are no manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales written in Geoffrey Chaucer's own hand. So you're always accessing that text through the mediating presence of the scribe and you're aware that the scribe is a human with their own biases and prejudices who may alter the text as they see fit. So to what degree can we truly access the words of the author? And that's kind of interesting and tricky when you're dealing with female authors and you're you're desperately trying to kind of rescue them from the sort of the dust of history how, how can you can you truly access their words, or are you seeing something that's been mediated? And what does that mean for your study of their work? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so eventually they start just throwing manuscripts out the window. And there are several manuscripts which very, very, very nearly perished. Um, several of the presses, the flames came up the back of them. And so the manuscripts became kind of singed at the edges. And one of those manuscripts is the Beowulf manuscript. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So speaking of scribes and authors, what was the relationship like between them? I think the the simple answer is um, it's a very mixed picture, right? So in the early medieval period, scribes were, and I'm making a generalization here, but scribes were generally attached to religious institutions. Um, and certainly in the early medieval period, there was probably a belief that the scribes' labor was a kind of devotional labor, um, the the Roman Christian writer Cassiodorus talks about the scribes' uh, work as being this kind of great, uh, almost martial activity, where he says that the, you know, that the the quill of the scribe is like weapons used to fight the the devil, and he talks about each uh, each mark of the scribe's quill being like a wound on the back of the devil. But by the time you get to the later medieval period, you have the emergence of um, secular manuscript production. So manuscripts being produced in workshops, they're not being produced in these uh, in these religious institutions anymore. So there, the work of the scribe is really quite different, right? So in the early medieval period, if you're talking about a scribe who's copying, say, the biblical text, well, that's an interesting question. Um, who did the scribe perceive the author of the biblical text to be? Well, most probably they perceived it as God. Um, but by the time you get to, say, the 15th century, and you've got scribes copying the work of, let's say, Geoffrey Chaucer, who had died in around 1400, um, yeah, it's hard to know exactly what the relationship was between the scribe and the author, or how they perceived that relationship. But certainly, I think scribes felt that they had the license to play with a text in a way that perhaps we wouldn't today. How much influence did an author have in the production of a manuscript of their work? Obviously, if they're in different centuries or it's been copied several centuries later, it's not going to obviously have that direct influence on that. But what about if they were a bit closer in time? I think a lot of authors showed a keen awareness of how once the text was out of their hands, they really had very little control over it. There's a famous um, little poem that Chaucer, supposedly by Chaucer, but some scholars disagree with that, in which Chaucer addresses uh, a scribe called Adam who copies his work. And, you know, he complains to Adam. He says, Adam, please, will you just copy this correctly? And that is true in the 15th century, but also there's a there's a writer from the early medieval period um, called Alfrich, um, a 10th century writer who who writes something very similar in his in his collection of um, of saints' lives. He says, you know, scribes, please make sure you copy this correctly. He knows full well. Um, so I think authors probably were aware of that. Um, there's a very interesting um, writer um, called Hugerberg who was a missionary nun in the 8th century who um, who wrote these two saints' lives. And at the end of one and the beginning of another one, she wrote this little section in, in code, which explained what her name was. And in the main text itself, the author announces themselves as little more than a indigna saxonica, so a lowly Saxon woman. So we know that the author is a woman, but 
Nobody knew that the what the author's name was until the 1930s when a scholar was able to untangle this little code that was sort of stitched into the end of the text. And I... I I often think about that because I, I sometimes wonder whether she knew the way that her text would be copied and recopied over time and the process of transmission would mangle it. And perhaps she knew that in the process of transmission, so often authors' names were lost because if an author's name was ever attached to a text in the first place, it probably appeared you know, in what we might call a rubric, meaning literally written in red, but not necessarily written in red, but essentially a title at the beginning of a text. And that rubric could just fail to be copied or it might be lost. And so an author's name might be erased, especially if that author's name was female. And so I sometimes wonder whether she was fully aware of how her name might be erased, and which is why she chose to record it in a little code. Uh, there's another lovely example, which is Marie de France, who uh, wrote in Anglo-Norman, which was the language of the kind of educated elite in England after the Norman conquest. And she embedded her name. She described herself as called Marie, and she said that she was from France, although she probably actually was from England. Um, but what's interesting is that she embedded her name within the verse of her text. So she used, as it were, the kind of controlling mechanism of rhyme, which ensured that that name had to be copied and recopied correctly in order to make the rhyme work, right? And again, I often think about that. I, I often think, was that a strategic decision? Did she know how her name would most often, most likely be erased from a text over time if it was female? That's very clever, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, you have to work the system however you can. <laughs> <laughs> At what point do we start to see a decline in manuscript production and use? And why is this? Yeah, so, I mean, just as today we use uh, e-readers and traditional books side by side and we perhaps we have different uses, you know, if you're going on holiday and you've got several novels you want to read, you're probably not going to take all of them in your luggage, right? So there the e-reader has, has an obvious use. But equally, if you were giving a book as a present to someone, you might not necessarily send them an electronic edition of the book. You probably would want to give them the physical book. So in much the same way that when print came along, manuscripts and printed books had different uses and they existed side by side for a long time. But really, once printing became um, cheap and, and readily available, manuscript use definitely declined. Um, although the two technologies sat side by side and there was... Um, there was a lot of kind of cross-pollination in terms of their uses. So right at the end of the book, I talk about a manuscript that was copied from a printed text. Um, so manuscripts go on being made even in the era of print. But in that instance, it was a text that perhaps was being presented to someone, that it had a, an important you know, the physical text itself had a sort of symbolic value and therefore it had to be a, a manuscript copy. The Reformation and... The dissolution of the monasteries is clearly a key moment um, in which a huge number of manuscripts are destroyed. But several scholars have argued that it's also in this moment that people start to experience a kind of nostalgia for the past and start to see that old manuscripts could be valuable as fascinating historical artefacts rather than outdated things that are out of use and need to be cut up and recycled and used again. And some people say that the kind of emergence of a sort of 
the beginnings of a kind of historian sensibility begins in this period when people begin to conceptualise the past differently. So I'm going to jump a little bit here, just a little bit, but it's perhaps jumping backwards. How were manuscripts actually made and what were they made from and that kind of thing? Yes, so one of the things to say about manuscripts is that most manuscripts, particularly in the early medieval period, were were made from parchment and um Parchment is the prepared skin of a domestic animal, so a sheep or a calf. And it's an unbelievably elaborate process to to make parchment. Um, I actually went to William Cowley's, which is the last parchment maker in the UK, and, and watched this process. And it's it's an incredible experience. It's very, very smelly. <laughs> Um, it's also very labour-intensive. But it begins with these um, hides being soaked in quicklime, and then they get thrown over a thing called a stump and they have the hair removed and then they get soaked again and then they get hung up and stretched over a kind of frame that looks like a sort of rustic trampoline and then they get scraped again and then they get put in an oven. It's a, it takes a long time. And at the end of this lengthy process, what you get is this fantastic writing material. It's 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 flexible, it's milky smooth, It's it has lots of advantages as a writing service because you can rub out if you write it, if you make a mistake, you can rub it out. Um, and what's great about it is it's durable. It's it's so so durable. Um, you know, there are manuscripts like, for example, the Codex Sinaiticus, which was made in about around three two five to three seven five. It's an important um, partial copy of the New Testament. And that manuscript, given its age, is in pretty mint condition. And that's a real testament to to the durability of parchment. Um, it's a great irony that um, cheap 20th century paperbacks with glued spines often present kind of more of a headache for a library conservation department than medieval manuscripts because they just they just aren't built to last. Um, and modern paper is made from wood pulp, whereas medieval paper was made from from rags that were basically boiled down in a kind of big vat and then sort of sieved out and pressed between layers of felt. And so actually medieval paper is, is a lot more durable than modern paper. What's really wonderful about seeing the process of parchment being created is that it gave me this completely new appreciation of, of the value of manuscripts because today manuscripts command a very high price in the sale room because of their cultural value, right? But if you were to imagine that say you're insuring a manuscript, right? And and as a rough calculation, you're imagining how long would it take, if this manuscript was destroyed, how long would it take for me to replicate this object? And then you begin to think about the number of man hours just to make the material on which the text is written. And then beyond that, you think about how long it would take for the text to be copied. So if you're talking about, say, a copy of the Psalms, you know, that's only one book of the Bible. And that could take perhaps several years, depending on the type of script that was used. And that was only the writing of the text. So if you're then talking about the decoration of the text and then the binding, you're talking about an unbelievably lengthy, labor-intensive process. And that just gives you a completely new appreciation of the value of a manuscript. How has the value of manuscripts changed over the years and how has this almost affected how they've been treated? 
Yeah, so in the book I talk, I have a whole chapter about um, near disasters, so times when manuscripts have very nearly been destroyed or indeed have been destroyed. And the the final, the epilogue of the book, I talk about the Reformation and particularly the the dissolution of the monasteries, which was not a great time for England's textual heritage, let's be clear. <laughs> um, but this was a you know, an awful moment in which um, huge amounts of monastic property was destroyed and and with it, many uh, books were destroyed. I mean, there's this story about um, when Durham Cathedral was uh, was dissolved, how uh, Catherine Whittington, who was the dean's wife, took the stoops, i.e. the basins for keeping uh, holy water, and, and used them for storing salted fish and beef in her kitchen. It's an example of how the movable property um, of former monastic institutions was dispersed and reused. And the same thing was true of manuscripts, which were broken up and reused. Um, there's a terrible description by a man called John Bale of um, manuscript pages being used as cloths to clean candlesticks or um, to clean boots. And um, it's, a, it's very, very sad. And such a tiny proportion of what was originally created in the Middle Ages survives today. Um, there was once an important library in um, York, in Austin Friars, which was several hundred manuscript volumes, and only one or two survived the Reformation. So the destruction was terrible. Unfortunately, the destruction went on after the Reformation. So uh, in the book, I, I tell the story of this terrible fire in a place called Ashburnham House, so on the 23rd of October, 1731, um, the collection of a, of a man called Robert Cotton, who is an important Elizabethan antiquarian, uh, was being stored in a place called Ash Burnham House, which, well, you know, if you were a little superstitious, you might have thought maybe that's not the best place to store those manuscripts. Anyway, Robert Cotton had in his day amassed uh, the largest collection of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts ever collected. Uh, the state papers of Henry VIII, the state papers of Elizabeth I, the only known copy of Beowulf, the only known copy of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. A really incredible collection of manuscripts, um, some thousands of manuscripts. And on the night of the 23rd of October, uh, the collection was being cared for by a man called Richard Bentley. And his father, also called Richard Bentley, was Master of Trinity Cambridge at the time. And, and he came down to London in order to see his son. And as his father was visiting, Richard Bentley Jr. ensured that a good fire was made for Richard Bentley Sr. Richard Bentley Sr. was unfortunately staying in apartments on the floor below the library. And at around 2 a.m., Mrs. Bentley described seeing a great smoke and the fire travelled up the mantelpiece and then along the wainscot and then up to the floor above. And this desperate attempt to, to put the fire out began. And, and really it was a mistake because what the librarians should have done was go straight to the floor above and just start trying to get the books out. And the books were kept in these uh, locked bookshelves, um, things called presses. And each press had a little bust of a Roman emperor above it, uh, which is still reflected in the in the modern names of the manuscripts, the shelf marks. So, for example, the Beowulf manuscript is called uh, Cotton Vitellius A15 because it was in the press with a little sculpture of, of Vitellius at the top. And it was on the first shelf, so A, and it was the 15th one along. 
Anyway, so the librarians in the darkness at around two in the morning are trying to get the books out. And at a certain point, they have to just break them open because they can't find the keys or whatever. And uh, they try to get whole presses out and that doesn't work. And so eventually they start just throwing manuscripts out the window. And there are several manuscripts which very, very, very nearly perished. Um, several of the presses, the flames came up the back of them. And so the manuscripts became kind of singed at the edges. And one of those manuscripts is the Beowulf manuscript, which in 1731, there was no other copy of this text, which is considered the great gem of Anglo-Saxon literature. It, it, it's, um, it's about 3,000 lines long. The entire surviving corpus of Old English verse is about 30,000 lines. So it's really a very significant proportion of the surviving literature from the early medieval period in England. And its loss would have been a terrible, terrible loss. The next day, there's this terrible story about, um, so Ashburnham House was in the grounds of Westminster School. And next day, apparently, the boys from Westminster School came and gathered up these little uh, fragments of burnt manuscripts that were fluttering in the breeze. And the British Library still holds uh, boxes of these fragments, which has still been unable to catalogue, although there is now a project to catalogue them. There, is, there are kind of crumbs of hope in the story in the sense that... Um, Around 50 years later, uh, when the, the British Museum was created, um, it was partially the memory of those terrible events that informed this idea that we had to create a national collection, um, that the nation's textual heritage had to be treated better. And I think that that mentality, that philosophy, you know, is still in evidence today. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role of a patron of a manuscript. Why did they choose to give their patronage to the production of these manuscripts? And what can we really see in the documents of that? So patrons had all sorts of different motivations. Um, you know, a patron of, uh, say, a purely literary work might might just enjoy the poetry, for example, Um Thomas Hockleave, who's a 15th century poet, uh, had a number of royal patrons who presumably just liked reading. Um, but patrons are motivated by all kinds of different things. Um, I talk about an amazing manuscript called The Luttrell Psalter, which has these wild and anarchic and extraordinary images in its borders. Um, around the somber, sober text of the Psalms, you find this strange topsy-turvy world of uh, weird monsters and uh, these lovely kind of probably rather idealised scenes of, of rural life. Um, and that manuscript was commissioned by a, um, a man called Geoffrey Luttrell. And what his motivation was in commissioning it uh, is, is an interesting question. I mean, clearly he wanted a, a sumptuous copy of the Psalms. The degree to which he was involved in uh, directing this kind of mad and anarchic program of of illumination that appears at the borders it's, it's very it's very difficult to say um but i think you know in that instance he probably felt that commissioning this this work of the psalms uh might might offer him the promise of some kind of salvation or um he directed in his will that that prayers should be said after his death and perhaps he imagined that the psalter would be used for that purpose 
I also talk in the book about a fascinating figure, Queen Emma of Normandy, who is the great aunt of William the Conqueror. She's this pivotal figure in um, late Anglo-Saxon politics. Um, some people say she was, the, she was the kind of axis on which late Anglo-Saxon politics turned. And she commissioned this work called The Encomium M.I. Regini, which literally translates as In Praise of Queen Emma. And she had this very complicated life. She was from Normandy. She married Athelred the Unready when she was quite young. She had uh, several children. And then Athelred died and King Canute uh, invaded. And he then married her, whether forcibly or <laughs> by consent is unclear. And she then had several more children. So she was the mother of several different claimants to the English throne. So she had a, a really very complicated life trying to protect the, the competing warring interests of her children. And she commissioned this work, which was the story of her life. But it is a really flagrant piece of political propaganda. Um, it is, let's say, a little loosey-goosey with the truth. <laughs> it omits certain key details. It misdescribes her children. Uh, it describes some of her children as being, some of her children from her first marriage as being children from her second marriage, for example. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating text because it tells us something quite important about, I mean, I sometimes wonder about that text. Did she know the way women's stories tended to get mangled by posterity and therefore she commissioned this work that was this highly partisan piece of propaganda which told a very specific narrative about her life and, and glorified her life in a very particular way. So her motivation as a patron in that instance is pretty clear. Sometimes we can't be that clear. As a final question of mine, how would you like to see the future of manuscripts? How would you like to see their future care? And how would you like to see them valued? Well, I think uh, I talked earlier about the importance of digitization, And for me, that is the, the exciting frontier. Um, digitization is incredibly important because it allows us to do things as scholars that we haven't been able to do before. But it also allows people who are not scholars to see this material and to gain an appreciation of its richness. Um, digitization is, however, extremely expensive and very time-consuming, and it's difficult to do. And major institutions are beginning a program to digitize things, but it's going to take a very, very long time and a lot of money. Um, so my dream scenario is that all manuscript holdings in every library across the world are all digitized and um, freely available. But who's to say if that will happen in my lifetime? I think that's a lovely point to end on. So thank you for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Mary Wellesley. Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers is out now published by Quercus. You can find a whole host of material on the Middle Ages on our website at historyextra.com. <laughs>